We return to our study in the gospel according to John at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, looking this evening at the first 42 verses. wonderful story, a revelation of our Lord Jesus here and all of his saving mercies to people of Samaria. John 4, at verse 1, we read the word of the Lord. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said and answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. 
Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing on it. O Father, in heaven we pray you'd visit us tonight with your word. We praise you that in Jesus Christ there is salvation. And therefore, though we grieve at Times, even like in the loss of our brother Gary, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We thank you, you give to us hope through your word, and that your church upon the earth may hear the good news and rejoice in it, that there is life, everlasting life in Christ. We pray also, Lord, you'd encourage our hearts tonight as we think about our calling and mission in this world. We pray that you would work the things pleasing to you by your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, among some missionary videos our family enjoys watching, there's, a, there's an image that's kind of marked upon my mind of a well-drilling fella who, with missionaries, is laboring in Africa, as I recall, and, and he comes to this village with his well-drilling truck to this dry, dusty African village, and he, some outsider, European or American, and he goes about setting up his rig and beginning to drill this well, giving to a a village that presumably has no source at hand of of fresh, clean water. Maybe they draw from stagnant ponds or a little stream far off, but, but seeking to provide for them this tremendous gift of a well for their village. And the, the video comes to a conclusion of that part of the episode with this water being found and drawn up, and this truck clearly has some kind of pump on it, And there's a hose, and the man is spraying the water, only the video slows down to slow motion as he begins to douse all the little African children there. And we, of course, having garden hoses and so forth and running water are used to that. We've all played in a hose or maybe been sprayed by our father or sprayed our father with a hose. But but these boys and girls, it looks like they had never seen running water like this in their life. And, and as the video slows down, you see all these crystal clear, sparkling drops of water landing on them. They, with the biggest smiles, are giggling and dancing about. It's extraordinary that our lives, our impoverished lives, are doused with this clean, fresh water.
Think of that because as we come to Samaria here with Jesus, he comes to a dry and dusty village as it were. He comes as an outsider, but he leaves the citizens of Sychar with bright smiles that their dusty, weary lives are flooded with the refreshing water of communion with God through Jesus Christ. And the gospel writer John, you'll notice, is, is giving to us these little vignettes, these little episodes of encounters between Christ and people. Remember with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and now with this unnamed Samaritan woman. And, and these episodes are not to draw our attention so much to Nicodemus or to the Samaritan woman as if they were the hero of the story, but, but these interactions and these individuals, they work sort of as mirrors in which the glory of the Redeemer Jesus Christ is being reflected and refracted that we might see again a glimpse of the significance that the Christ, the Son of God, has come down. And so we see tonight him proclaimed to ever-increasing circles, now to the Samaritans, wider circles, and he's proclaimed by them as the Savior of the world. Let's look. The episode is, is sort of in three parts, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and then Jesus and the disciples, and then Jesus and the citizens of Sychar, and so we'll follow that along. But the, the episode here begins with these introductory words in the first three verses that when the Pharisees find out Jesus is doing all this baptizing, even more than John, Jesus departs. Perhaps he's wanting to prevent some premature crisis with the religious authorities, or perhaps that what's happening now with all these people flooding to Jesus to be baptized threatens in some way to, to produce misunderstanding. Jesus has more of his ministry he needs to engage in first. But in any case, Jesus leaves, and we read in verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. And we, we wonder, what does that mean? There were other routes he could take. This was the shortest route. This might have been the normal route. But was it a necessity of of travel, or was it a divine necessity of Christ's mission? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we, as we read on that this apparently casual encounter with this Samaritan woman, this unnamed social outcast, is anything but a chance encounter. This is a meeting destined from before the creation of the world as the Son in obedience to the mission the Father has given him is to engage her at this particular moment which will result presumably not only in her salvation, her becoming now one who would inherit heaven with Jesus forever, but the salvation of these Samaritans. Well, Jesus chooses on his journey a place to rest, which happens to be the well of Jacob. Jesus, we read, was wearied, verse 6. Jesus, who... Though eternal God has, has come and human flesh has entered in to this sorry world to experience the things that we experience, to be wearied as, as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were wearied, as we are wearied, here's our Christ coming for us. And, and the story takes place at a well. And you know that water in the Bible is a huge deal as a, a metaphor of, of communion with God, of life in God, and Water fits so well because it's so critical to life. And the people of Palestine, they knew that more than we know it. And and the life of Jesus, his ancestry is actually an ancestry that's bound up with wells. You read about Abraham and the digging of wells. And then you read about 
the bride being found for Isaac, when Abraham sent off his servant, and he traveled to Abraham's family, remember, and he, he found at the well, God brought to him at the well, Rebekah. And then their son Jacob later would be sent back there as well, fleeing from Esau. And he at the well would meet his bride. And so Jesus comes from a long line of remarkable encounters at wells. And what is Jesus thinking about as he sits at this well and reflects upon his father Jacob? Having come now Jesus in the flesh here as the son of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's at a well and this will be the day of encounter also for him. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman who comes to draw water and he asks her for a drink. And she replies, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And we get the sense immediately that this is not exactly a bashful woman, a shy woman around men, but she knows how to handle a man. And she has no interest in this man who sits there. And she offers this rather snide rebuke for Christ crossing the boundaries of etiquette as it was in those days that the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews and Jews don't drink from the vessels of Samaritans. Who wants Samaritan germs? Remember, this was the land, the promised land. But you remember what happened, that when the, the, the northern kingdom, the rebellious kingdom, was taken captive, that land was resettled. The poor of the land, the Jews remain, but it was also resettled by pagans that were brought in there and then they intermingled and married and then they had their pagan idolatries and then when things weren't going well they decided to get a priest of Israel to teach them how to appease Jehovah the Jewish God and so there's this mix of religion this mix of ethnicities and the Jews despise them Jesus has just crossed two social boundaries he's spoken with a woman and he's spoken with a Samaritan but Jesus replies If you knew who was talking to you, you wouldn't be rebuking me for social etiquette. You'd be begging me for the water of life. It's remarkable, isn't it, that Jesus here relates to this woman, not as most Jews would have, by setting her in a particular category, you're one of them, you're a Samaritan, but he deals with her as a person. Perhaps a reminder for us tonight who are living in a culture that's so good at dividing people up into groups and setting up boundaries that can't be crossed and putting people in categories and then writing them off that the Savior looks upon her as a person, a human, an image bearer, a desperately needy one. And he proclaims to her that he has living water to give The woman pushes back. You have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Our father, our great father, Jacob, gave us this well. He drank from it. He depended upon it. And are you greater than father, Jacob? And Jesus replies that the well is good, right? It was a blessing of God in the Old Testament to provide all these wells for his people and supply them physically with water. 
But if you drink of this well of Jacob, you'll be back here tomorrow, just as you were here yesterday. It's the nature of it. You're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water I give, you will never thirst again. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman replies as they go back and forth here. It was a boxing match. You'd say it was a knockout in the seventh round. But it's not a boxing match, is it? It's, it's Christ so gently, persistently leading her. And she replies, give me this water so I won't thirst anymore. I won't have to come here anymore. And, and it's not clear to me whether, whether she's being rather snide and saying, oh, yeah, sure, give me that everlasting water, wink, wink, so I don't have to come here each day, or whether she's just as oblivious as Nicodemus was when Jesus spoke of the new birth and, and he couldn't conceive how you could be born again. She entered the womb a second time. But in any case, she's not taking his word seriously enough. Because she doesn't recognize her true thirst and her deep need and her great dehydration. And so Jesus says, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come here. And then she answers with her shortest and most abrupt answer of the exchange. She says, I have no husband. She's not going to go there. You're not going to expose me. I'm not going with you down this road. And Jesus replies, that's true. You've had five husbands. And now you're living with a man who is not your husband. And Christ is bringing her face to face with the reality of her own depravity, her own spiritual need. He doesn't let her remain just thinking about her physical life, but he's, he's pressing in upon the way that her life evidences her tremendous thirst, that she's found no satisfaction. She's gone from man to man to man, and her thirst is not quenched. She's gone from man to man, and they have left her dry and thirsty. Jesus is exposed in the moral ruin of her life. And it's only as we are confronted with that that we come to know our need of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? As our Savior presses in upon us by his word and by his spirit and he, he convicts us. We, we're so easily satisfied in this world with all the things that we can see and touch and all the desires of our flesh. But Christ brings us before the mirror of his law. Well, the woman replies, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She acknowledges what he says is true. He's spoken as a prophet. But she quickly moves on to this great theological discussion, whether one should worship at Jerusalem, Mount Zion, or whether one should worship in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. And this was the great divide. Many point out she seems to be changing the subject rather quickly here. Let's quit talking about me and talk about theological issues. And I think that's part of it, but I do wonder if, if in her mind, if she's beginning in any way to even to begin to let her think that he might have something to offer her, then what comes to her mind is this striking reality. There's a mountain between us. There's a mountain between us. 
Her life is full of barriers, isn't it? And she's been closed in by them. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's an unfaithful woman. She's a fornicating woman. She's no doubt ostracized by, by society in some ways. And, and if she wonders if there's any sense at all that you might be a prophet, have something to offer, surely it can't be offered to me. I'm a Samaritan. And you Jews have made it clear that we are not welcome. And Jesus tells her, the time is coming, it's now here, when it's not in Jerusalem, it's not on Mount Gerizim, where worship will occur. The hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All the ceremonies and the externals of the Old Covenant are are falling down, the scaffolding is falling down because the Christ, the substance, has appeared now. And the Father is seeking such to worship him in spirit and truth. He's seeking those who will come before, yes, with a spiritual worship, not a mere external worship, but a worship of the heart, but also in truth, God's truth, but also the truth of acknowledging sin. And the woman throws up her arms, as it were, and said, yeah, I know when the Messiah comes, then it's all going to be sorted out. And she deflects one more time, doesn't she? And Christ says, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. If this is the Christ and he knows me through and through, and yet knowing me he speaks so kindly, he promises to give me eternal life, to quench my thirst, If this is the Christ of God and what he says is true, the Father is seeking such to worship him, then the Father is seeking me right now, she must be thinking. Seeking me right now to be one of his worshipers. And she goes running off to town. Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Before she didn't want to talk about her life. She didn't want to talk to this Jewish man about her life. But now she will broadcast it to the city. She'll admit all the things I've done. He knows them all. And she will call them to come and see. It's remarkable, isn't it, the pursuit of our Lord Jesus here? The woman, as somebody has said, she's trying to do everything she can do not to get saved. And the pursuing, persistent grace of the Lord Jesus doesn't let go. She dodges and she deflects and he presses in. She thinks she's leading this conversation far away. And Christ leads it right to the dead sinner. That you need a savior and I have appeared. I am he. Isn't it marvelous to see the Christ who knows the heart? He knows us. Books being, making this point, the Gospel of John, right? Jesus saw earlier, he knew Simon Peter. He, he, he shows that he knew Nathaniel and saw him before he ever came to Jesus when he was under the tree. John 10, he'll say he'll know, he knows his sheep. Here in John 4, he knows the heart of this Samaritan woman. Earlier we read that, that he knew what was in a man. A remarkable thing it must have been to her, that he who knew all this about me before the conversation started, that he called upon me, that he pursued me. 
She may have thought she was a lost cause. Every man had disappointed her. What man would want her? And now the true man comes, the perfect man, the God-man. And he not only points up her sin, but he points up the free gift of God. Jesus steps across every boundary. Jesus reaches across to this woman. And Jesus tells her, the Father is seeking you. He's calling you. The Savior we have. The glorious love and mercies. He came to seek and to save the lost. Marvelous illustration of this. What a, what a demonstration to see our, our Savior and all of his mercies and love. We know that we are prone to write people off as, as beyond redemption. We sometimes write ourselves off. And sometimes we think that by making excuses we can get Christ off our trail. But what a persistent Savior. Well, then look at the ministry that Jesus urges on his disciples. In the midst of this conversation, we're at the end, I guess, really after Jesus says, I'm the Christ. Then verse 27, the disciples show up and they marvel that he's talking to a woman. But they don't dare to ask, what are you doing? They sense that he knows something they don't know. Right? There's a marvelous providence of God here, isn't there? Some have rightly taken note that the disciples don't come too early and interrupt the conversation, and they don't come too late to fail to see what's going on here after the woman is left. But at right, the, the exact the right moment in God's providence, they show up. The disciples are witnessing something here that, that demands their attention because they must learn about the Christ whose disciples they are, and they must learn about the mission that he's taken up and the mission that he, he calls them to. Jesus is talking with a woman. The rule of the rabbis, scholars tell us, was let no one talk with a woman in the street. No, not with one, one's own wife. As one commentator puts it, the disciples here are receiving a lesson in the true emancipation of womanhood. Without changing any of the creation ordinance regarding the proper place of woman, the Lord clearly indicates that before God, the soul of a woman is not less precious than that of a man. It's a good reminder, isn't it? We hear so much, we've heard so much about how, you know, Christianity, it stifles women. And yet you read the history of the church, it's precisely the opposite. Wherever the gospel is preached, the dignity of woman is lifted high. Our Savior didn't despise women. Some of his day did and counted them less than a man. But the soul of a woman is precious to the Lord and the soul of a Samaritan as well. And the disciples are to learn from their Savior here. And so are we. Again, our culture is good at dividing people up by age or sex or income or education or ethnicity or accomplishments or popularity or physical attractiveness or political leanings. Christ comes for humans, sinners. Steps across every boundary, breaks down every barrier. He's come to save. Well, as the woman rushes off, leaving her water pot behind, she has better water now of which to drink. She says to the people of Sychar, come see a man who told me everything. It reminds us of that response of Nathaniel to Philip's testimony when he he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. 
There's nothing to hide here. There's what we, we do with, with people who, who would ask us, can it really be true? Come. come. Come hear the preaching of God's word. Come read the book. Come meet Jesus. He speaks for himself. But while they're on the way, now these people of Sychar are streaming out of this, the town to come see Jesus. The disciples are urging Jesus, you know, I need to eat. Have some food. And Jesus says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And they're perplexed again. But he tells them his food is to do the will of the Father. To finish his work. The thing that satisfies me, the thing that that fills me, my deepest desire, he says, is to engage the mission the Father sent me to seek and to save the lost. That's my greatest desire. That's my greatest urgency. He'll come, remember at the end of of the Gospel of uh, John, in chapter 17 at the high priestly prayer, and he'll pray to his Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus is singularly focused on his mission, which the Father has sent him to rescue sinners from destruction and restore them to communion with God. And he's summoning now his disciples to join him in this work. He says, you're saying four months till the harvest? Maybe that's what they were saying as they they walked through Samaria. Yeah, it looks like about four months till harvest. And Christ says, no, the harvest is now. Look at the fields ripe. And at that moment, what's happening? All these people are streaming out of the town of Sychar and making their way through the fields to Jesus. Look, ripe for harvest, all these souls. And then he'll say, that one sows, another reaps. But they will join each other in rejoicing. And while these disciples have been gone, Christ has been sowing the seed in the heart of this woman. And now she's been sowing the seed in Sychar. And now the disciples have just arrived, are invited to gather up the harvest and to rejoice together. And the scriptures, harvest is a time of tremendous joy, right? They had harvest parties. It was a, it was a glorious thing, the threshing floor, when all the wheat was being threshed out and there was rejoicing that God had blessed us so abundantly he's he's done the miracle again another harvest but nothing compares does it to the harvest of souls and they're invited to join and to reap together what a glorious privilege glorious privilege for us as the church of Christ as well We reap where Christ has sown, by his death and by his resurrection and by the outpouring of his spirit. We sow seed and we reap, and we ought to rejoice. So remember where we are as the people of God. This is the day of salvation, Scripture declares. When when we see Jesus coming on the clouds, it's over. It's not five years, not a thousand years in which to be saved. Right now, the trumpet blasts, the gospel is being preached, and this is the moment in history in which dead sinners may, may come in repentance to Christ and find life. But when Christ comes, it's over. No one else will be saved. We're to know where we are and to recognize the opportunity. Now, I know we get discouraged. I get discouraged, right, at the lack of response in America to, to the gospel. And we might say to ourselves, you know, if I talked to one woman tomorrow and 30 people came to church next week, I'd be talking to everyone I meet. And we, we need to read the word and not lose confidence in the power of our saving Savior. And, and we need to read church history and see how the Lord works. And there are moments, aren't there, when, 
when someone preaches and, and glorious things happen. We have Charles Spurgeon. We have George Whitfield. We have these marvelous times. And there are other times that are remarkable in the seemingly fruitless persistence of a missionary who preaches and preaches and preaches and no one is converted. At least not yet. But in all cases, we are to believe that Christ is a real Savior. And if it's his labor and the work of his Spirit, then he will not fail. The Savior who persists here after this woman will persist after every one of the elect, and he will gather them all up. But will we join the harvesters? One commentator comments on Jesus' necessity of going through Samaria and encountering the Samaritan woman, and he writes, Jesus lived with a profound sense of destiny. Without being unnatural in any way, he was constantly alert to the purpose and possibilities that would unfold with every turn he took in his journey through the world. The same sense of our lives being bound up in God's plan ought to be a mark of every true child of God. It is a mindset which has the potential for opening up thrilling dimensions. Hmm. When we say I need to go through here or drive there or this or that, is there any profound sense of destiny? We often think of our lives of, as lives of little significance. doesn't matter if I do this. doesn't matter if I do that. Nothing much matters. We begin to live that way and we begin to pray that way, which is to say we don't pray. Without any sense that the living Lord Jesus might be up to the business of saving lives. But what if we believe that Christ was determined as determined and active today as he was at the Samaritan well. What if we believe the Father had predestined us to live here and to live now, and to meet the people we meet, and to be related to the people we're related to, all for the coming of his kingdom? You know, the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians and tell them that's the way you have to live. He says in Colossians chapter 4, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he says, you Colossians, you pray that even in my chains, this will be the open door for the gospel. And then he tells them, you, you Colossians, you walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Redeeming the time, that means buying up the time, scooping up the time, grabbing the time. Don't let the moments of time run through your fingers as, as so many moments lost forever. But take hold of them. Let your speech be careful. Let it be well-seasoned. Let it be full of grace. This is the time of salvation. 
So we're privileged, aren't we, as the Church of Christ to ourselves being visited by Christ, being rescued by Christ, now to be called into the mission enterprise for his kingdom and have eyes now and a heart that are, that are focused and that are perceptive of opportunity. And yet we often find ourselves, don't we, that we're more like the disciples, that we're so consumed about bread. Isn't it time for lunch yet? And it's our physical desires and wants and needs that often consume us. So alert to those. I mean, literal food, right? We've got alarm clocks set in our stomachs and minds for food, and we're alert. If there's good food out, we see it. But what would it be to say, my food is to do the will of my Savior? But the good news here is that we have such a Savior who opens eyes. And even as he said to these disciples, lift up your eyes and see, so he takes us by the hand. And he trains us, doesn't he? And we can be trained. When you begin to shop for a a car, you narrow down maybe the model and make and what you want, and then you begin to see those cars all over the roads. You're trained for them, right? Or if if you're into bird watching, you see birds where people don't see birds. Or if you're into gardening, you see flowers that I walk right past. But, but what if the Lord Jesus Christ would train us to lift up our eyes and to see the opportunities? And to be a people who set out in prayer each morning. Lord, help me to see the opportunity and to seize the opportunity. If we knew that there was a world full of people just like the Samaritan woman, desperately thirsty and not even knowing of their thirst. And we knew that that we have a Savior who himself is the refreshing water. He is communion with God and gives himself freely. Then we'd have great reason to be excited, wouldn't we? To have a sense of destiny, not that we are Christ, but that we are Christians, prophets and priests and kings who share in Christ's anointing and who are called to redeem the time. Our Savior would train us in that, and we can pray that he will. But the episode moves from the Samaritan woman with Jesus to Jesus and the disciples, finally to Jesus here with the people of Sychar. The townspeople come out to Jesus here, and neither they in their seeking nor the disciples in their harvesting are disappointed. We read in verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. And then they urged Jesus to stay. The Samaritans here, opening their hearts, opening their homes to Jesus, that he would stay with them. And then we read in verse 41, And many more believed because of his own word. Excuse me. So they have their own encounter with Christ. And that's what we pray for, isn't it? And that's what we desire. And even as we speak to people about the Lord Jesus, what do we want? But that they would come meet Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, that they'd meet him in his word, that they'd meet the living Jesus and the preaching of his word. And so we want to invite people to church, don't we? Believing that in the, the church's ministry of the word, in the proclamation of the word, the Savior is pleased to stand and speak and visit. 
Romans 10, you know, how shall they believe in the one they have not heard? They have to hear the voice of Jesus, and he's heard through his word. Now, Jesus would not go about evangelizing all of Samaria, would he? In fact, Jesus would say in Matthew 10 to his disciples, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The evangelizing of Samaria is going to wait for the Great Commission. As Jesus sends them out to the nations, it's going to wait for Acts 8 when the gospel comes to Samaria. But what Jesus did here was prove the very thing that the Samaritans were delighted to declare And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So many Jews reject Jesus, right? The people who who had the revelation, they reject the Messiah when he comes. And yet here are Samaritans flooding into the kingdom of Jesus, believing on him. But Christ is proving that he's come for all kinds of people, right? No one needs to stay away because of some barrier, No one needs to stay away because they've blown it too many times. I mean, think of the examples God gives us in the Word. We have this woman who married five times. Well, that's an encouragement to someone who's been unlawfully, maybe divorced three times. Think of what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says that he was redeemed. Saul, the persecutor of God's people, was rescued as an example for those who would believe. God is, is holding up these trophies of his grace, and he's declaring there is salvation for sinners. Enough with the stuff of getting yourself cleaned up and doing some good things so God will accept. You know, he's come. He's come for those who have nothing. And you see, if you ask how is it that to this desperately dehydrated woman that he can promise this, this water that will well up in her, springing up unto everlasting life, well, the answer is going to be found at the end of the book, isn't it? When he who proclaims the Father, will himself be forsaken by the Father on the cross, and he will cry out, I thirst. And he will bear everything that we deserved. To be cut off from communion with God, to receive not eternal life, but eternal death, and in his thirst to win for us that communion with the Lord, that will never end. What a beautiful Savior we have. How can we not long to recommend him to anyone who will listen? What a beautiful Savior we have. In all of his mercies, in all of his love, in all of his gentle, truthful, persistent seeking. Let us give thanks that he sought us out, and let us pray that his cause will grow. Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus, we give you praise, sent by the Father, and now working by the outpouring of your Spirit, the Savior who rescued us and who is still in the business. We pray, O God, that you will do your thing, and that your kingdom will come, that your name will be praised, that your gospel will have the power of the Spirit. Father, we grieve that our outlook on this world is so often different from our Lord Jesus's. As we write people off, as we shake our heads, as we begin to think that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of 
certain middle-class, respectable people. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to see in every human life there an image-bearer, a rebel, if they are, unsaved, but one who, in any case, needs the Lord Jesus. May we rejoice with those who found the Lord Christ, those who've been found by Christ, and may we, Heavenly Father, pray and seek those who are still seeking satisfaction in the broken cisterns of this world. We pray, Lord, for our witness as a congregation and for our opportunities this week also as families and individuals. And we pray that you'd work within us a heart of mercy after the heart of our Savior. Take away all of our pride, remove our egos, and cause us to love our neighbors. Open our eyes to the harvest, we pray. And may we rejoice that the streams of living water have been refreshingly poured over us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.